Hi there, Jacinta here. Um, just letting you know that we haven't forgotten about you. Um, sorry for the radio silence and the lack of episodes lately. Uh, Daniel, Tsimiso and I have had absolutely insane workloads. So we are prioritizing our mental health and we had to take a break. So we apologize for that, um, but we hope you'll understand. Um, in the meantime, have a listen to this rerun of episode 29 from one of our earlier series called Zombies of the Cosmos, in which we uh, hear from Professor Matthew Bales and from science journalist Katya Moskvich all about neutron stars and pulsars. There's been a whole lot of amazing discoveries very recently um, coming from pulsars, and we're going to hear uh, an update on that from uh, Matthew Bales soon. So um, stay tuned for that. It's coming out very soon, and we hope you enjoy this episode in the meantime. Bye for now. Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Daniel Kanema and Dr. Jacinta Dalhays. Each episode, we'll be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies. Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make. Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies. Hi, welcome to episode 29. 29. Yeah. I was wondering what episode we were on. Have you noticed it's a bit more echoey today, Dan? It's a lot more echoey today. We yeah. apologize for that in advance. We didn't bring the blankets for the blanket fort, so we're sitting in Dan's office, and I think the blankets were actually helping. Yeah. COVID willing, we will hopefully be back in studio soon. Hopefully. Right. So, who do we have today? So, today we're joined by two people. Firstly, Professor Matthew Bales, who is the director of Swinburne Center for Astrophysics and Supercomputing in Australia. And then we are joined by Katja Moskovich, who is a science journalist and the European Science Journalist of the Year in 2019. This episode is all about pulsars and neutron stars. We're talking to these two experts who are experts in sort of different ways. Yeah, so Matthew leads the Mir Time project with the Meerkat Telescope. So he's going to tell us all about Meertime and the observations they're doing with Meerkat and what they're hoping to find with that. And Katia is, uh, as you said, an award-winning writer and author, and she's written a book about neutron stars. So we're going to hear from her as well. So first up, Dan, let's just talk about what a pulsar is, what a neutron star is, just briefly. Yeah, so I think our guests will discuss it in detail, but we can we can talk about it quickly now. Uh, so a neutron star is the end point of a certain star's evolution. So when stars die, largely by supernova, they form very dense objects, such as neutron stars, which are very, very small, about 20 k's across and spinning very rapidly and very, very dense. So, you know, it's a few times the mass of our sun, but compressed into a 20-kilometer sphere. And highly magnetized as well. Yeah, so, so they're spinning very fast and they're emitting a lot of energy. And uh, sometimes they are born in, in binary systems, so they're orbiting with another star, and if one of them turns into a neutron star and the other one remains a giant, then the neutron star can kind of pull some gas off the giant star, and that causes some cataclysmic results and some nuclear explosions and all of these yeah. really cool things, which Matthew will talk about. 
Yeah, we've talked about X-ray binaries and things before. Yeah, that's true. Um, but you know, the, these sorts of systems where you've got a binary system with a neutron star and one, one other. Neutron stars are very sort of dense and exciting branch of astronomy because they're such an extreme case. Very, very dense objects moving very, very rapidly. And from that, that's kind of always what we want in, in astronomy because we get a, a laboratory which we can't recreate here on Earth. Yeah, exactly. It's a, one of the universe's most extreme examples of a particle accelerator and a magnet and a, and moving relativistically, which means moving close to the speed of light. As you said, we can't reproduce that on Earth, so we can only do some of these extreme tests with these astronomical laboratories, such as studying gravitation, gravitational theory, gravitational waves. Yeah. So, we'll start off with Matthew. Yeah. So, I think Matthew explains everything really well, especially about his use of the Meerkat telescope, which is a radio telescope here in South Africa in the Karoo. I actually spoke to him at a conference in Durban. It was actually back in December when we were allowed to travel. So I spoke to him in person. So let's hear from Matthew. Here with us now is Professor Matthew Bales from the Swinburne University of Technology. Welcome, Matthew. Hi, Jacinta. So, Matthew, you are here with us in South Africa at the moment, but you are working and living in Australia. So what what brings you here? Basically, the greatest pulsar telescope in the world at the moment, Meerkat. Well, I like that answer, uh, but let's backtrack a bit. So, who are you, where are you from, what do you do? Well, I was born in Alice Springs in the middle of Australia, but I did my education at the University of Adelaide and the Australian National University. Uh, while I was a student at uh, Adelaide, I saw a book on pulsars and I learned about them and how they're really cool. And I thought that sounded like fun. So I quit my engineering degree and moved into science and then um, ended up doing a PhD on pulsars and going to the Goddard Space Flight Center and Jodrell Bank in England and eventually back uh, where I set up the uh, Swinburne Center for Astrophysics and Supercomputing and have been having fun ever since. You set it up. Yeah, I was the first astronomer to come over to uh, Swinburne University of Technology and um, they asked me if I'd like to establish a new group. I don't think they realized that there would be a hundred of us at some point in the future, but they've loved us and we've loved them, so it's worked out very well. Well, that's great. Yeah, Swinburne's quite renowned in Australia, so congratulations on that. Um, now, we are here at the Sereo Bursary Conference in Durban, in South Africa, and you're here as an international guest speaker, and you gave, I think, the best astronomy talk I've ever seen, immediately after which I had to give my science presentation, so that was a really hard act to follow. Thanks for that, Matthew. <laughs> now, you were speaking all about just the sheer joy of pulsars, so let's start with what is a pulsar? So, a pulsar is the collapsed core of a once massive star, maybe 10 times bigger than our sun. Stars are big chemical factories and at the centre they convert hydrogen to helium and then helium to carbon and that process continues until you get an iron core, which is about the size of the Earth but maybe half a million times more heavy than the Earth, more dense as we'd like to say. And at that point the poor old electrons and protons can no longer resist each other's charms and they collapse to form a neutron and the core collapses down to something only about 20 kilometers in diameter and probably spinning about 50 times a second. That's a naturally occurring particle accelerator, and the particles that are accelerated from the surface of these neutron stars move in a changing magnetic field, and it gives off radio emission, and it acts like a big cosmic lighthouse. And every time that lighthouse goes past our telescopes, 
uh, we get a pulse, and hence the name pulsar. And why is it so cool to study pulsars? Well, if you look at the gravity on Earth, it's actually pretty small by cosmic standards. We have an acceleration due to gravity of 9.8 metres per second squared. A neutron star is half a million times heavier, so that gives you a a factor of 500,000 increase in the acceleration due to gravity, but they're also about a factor of 600 times smaller, and that's a sort of R-squared thing. So you've got these gravitational fields, you know, a million times stronger than that on Earth, and it's a naturally occurring place to conduct studies into relativistic gravity, which is kind of why I get paid. (laughs) Well, that's a good enough reason to study pulsars. All right, so you are actually the principal investigator on a a large survey project planned for the Meerkat telescope um, called MirTime. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, so MirTime is something that we came up with almost 10 years ago when they first called for large survey projects with the Meerkat. We recognised that Meerkat would have a, a good combination of collecting area but also very high-technology receivers, which are nice and cool. And that makes it the most sensitive pulsar telescope in the Southern Hemisphere. And unfortunately, pulsars are very weak. Uh, Your mobile phone has a transmitter on it, which is about half a watt. Uh, The brightest pulsar is about 10 to the minus 26 watts per square meter when the radiation arrives at the Earth. So you need a big telescope to be able to study them. Okay, and so Meerkat is that big telescope? Yeah, Meerkat has 64 dishes. They're about 14 metres effectively in diameter. And that gives it about four times the collecting area of the Parkes Telescope, which is in Australia, which is uh, one of my true loves. I use that telescope for my PhD and, and most of my career. But it's really exciting on the road to the SKA to have this quantum leap with, with Meerkat. It's about you know, four times the collecting area of, of parks and, and has these very nice sort of chilly receivers. You can think of them. They're a few degrees cooler than, than the ones at parks. And so you really get this fantastic insight into the neutron stars that has been hinted at by parks, but now we're sort of taking it the next step with Meerkat. Yeah, I think you and I actually met at parks for the first time. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I remember an unsuccessful attempt to recruit you to Swinburne for a PhD, <laughs> Jacinta, but... Oh, you've brought that up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so tell us about the goals of MIRTIME. What what in particular are you trying to look at? Well, we've got four major projects and they're actually headed by my my colleagues that are distributed around the globe. We've sort of recruited some of the best pulsar astronomers all the way from Italy to America or England to South Africa and, and Australia. And the first project is to explore relativistic gravity. Michael Kramer from Germany and Ingrid Stairs from Canada are are leading that project. And that's to look at pulsars that not only are relativistic in their own right, but are also going around another relativistic object, either a heavy white dwarf or another neutron star. And we're mapping the orbits and seeing whether Einstein's relativity theory works for those systems. The second project is to look at swarms of pulsars that inhabit globular clusters. So globular clusters typically have you know, 100,000 to a million stars in them. And the neutron stars in those clusters sink into the core where they interact with other stars. They actually scoop up matter and this makes them spin very quickly. And we have these um, swarms of millisecond pulsars. These are pulsars rotating at up to about 700 times a second. And Meerkat peers into the heart of those clusters and we examine the, the dynamics of those cluster pulsars. 
We have another project which is trying to detect gravitational waves using millisecond pulsars, this time not from the globular clusters but from our own galaxy, more, more nearby ones. And we're effectively using those millisecond pulsars as a giant galactic scale gravitational wave detector, a little bit like the LIGO detector detects kilohertz gravitational waves. We're actually looking at nanohertz gravitational waves from supermassive black holes in the, in the local universe. And then finally, because um, we're greedy, uh, we have a project called the Thousand Pulsar Array, where we're just looking at virtually every pulsar known to mankind and trying to examine the, the superfluid interiors of the, these neutron stars and how the pulsar emission mechanism works. Okay, so there's a lot of different science in there. Uh, one question I had was when you were talking about relativistic pulsars, well, relativistic white dwarfs, I think you said, what do you mean by that? On Earth, you know, our velocities are typically measured in, in meters per second. Stars tend to move around each other in sort of kilometers per second type velocities. But if you get a really close pair of neutron stars, they can have a relative velocity at almost a thousand kilometers per second. This is a reasonable fraction of the speed of light. And if you try and use Newton's laws to study those systems, they, they just break down. There's also a, a compression of space time around these relativistic objects and light takes longer to travel past these stars than it would otherwise. And so we can see that curvature of space in the delays that we get from the pulses from the neutron star. A kind of fun fact is that we're able to measure the changes in these orbits to less than a millimeter per orbit when when they go around each other, even though the, the orbits are hundreds of thousands of kilometers in diameter. During your talk, you mentioned that neutron stars can survive giant nuclear wars. What was that about? Yeah, so what happens is if you get a, a neutron star with a, a companion that's swelling up, big stars die, and when they do, they, they swell up and become what we call a red giant. If the red giant has a neutron star orbiting it, then the neutron star will scoop up the matter. The more boring companions that are lower mass, a bit like our, our sun, leave you with a very circular orbit, um, which is not quite as exciting for studying relativity. So we like our neutron stars to have big companions that blow up and leave all sorts of exotic configurations that we can study and, and test relativity even more. Now, now, your presentation had a lot of incredible visualizations and graphics and movies. How did you do that? Yeah, there's a computer game engine called Unity, which is used for most of the mobile phone apps that, that you play computer games with. So we decided to make an astrophysical universe a game engine that had everything in space we could think of from planets to suns to pulsars and black holes. And then we just took the laws of physics and applied them so we get true Keplerian orbits and beams of radiation. And I'm part of an organization or a center of excellence called Osgrave, the ARC Center of Excellence for Gravitational Wave Discovery. And we have a full-time programmer who makes these beautiful binary systems that I can fly around and engage with the public. And you can actually sit there for hours and just like zoom around and come up with nice configurations. And it makes for a very, makes for a very entertaining and visually rich feast for any audience. So I actually grew up and one of the reasons I'm doing astronomy was because I watched the Cosmos television show when I was an impressionable young teenager. The Carl Sagan version. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm a, a big Carl fan. And then I just f fell in love with that show and I, I loved the the visualizations he had, but I, I realized that with today's technology, we could make much better ones. And so 
at Osgrove, we've got a team that makes these beautiful graphics and they're, they're really great to stand up and explain to people your science without graphs and diagrams and astrophysical terms. It's a, a picture paints a thousand words and animations even better. Yeah, it absolutely was. And there were people in the audience, senior people in the audience, who don't necessarily have any love for pulsars, but uh, really love galaxies. And you said at the end, does anyone want to come and work with me on pulsars? And they were all like, yes, (laughs) we are converts. (laughs) So, clearly your visualizations and your talk gave a really good impression. Do you have any final messages for listeners? Yeah, look, I think uh, one thing that uh, your audience should realize is that the Meerkat is uh, a really great telescope. I was a little bit sceptical that a a country as junior in radio astronomy as South Africa would be able to to meet the technical challenges, but we've been delighted with its performance and the the hospitality that the team has shown our group as we've we've come in. Um, But I'm also very conscious of the fact that South Africa has somewhat of a tortured history. Um, My own grandmother was South Africa. In fact, my auntie was born around the corner in Durban and... um, they set sail for Australia about 100 years ago. And we'd really like to be able to engage with as many young South African scientists and get them involved in this science and one day make South Africa a powerhouse in pulsar astrophysics. Let's hope so. And I think you're on, on the right track. Where can people find you on social media or on websites um, for you and your um, Mere Time project? Yeah, so it's www.meartime, that's M-E-E-R-T-I-M-E dot org. And are you on Twitter? Yes, my um, Twitter tag is a very boring Matthew Bales, um, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-B-A-I-L-E-S. I didn't realise you had to have some cool name, so it might be too late now to change. Don't worry, mine's J. Del Hayes. <laughs> um, well, thank you very much for speaking with us, Matthew, and for joining us here in Durban for this conference, and safe travels home. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what did you think of that, Dan? A few of the things he said, very sort of casually and understated, but all of the science he's talking about, this is Nobel Prize winning stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very exciting. The, the, the pulsar timing projects, you know, there's been a lot of talk about gravitational waves in the last five years since their discovery, well, their first observation in 2015. And we're sort of getting more and more gravitational wave discoveries but being able to observe them passing through you know large swaths of the milky way by looking at the changes in the time of pulses Ugh. oh it's <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> it's, I mean, stuff, huh? it's ver- no it's very exciting mm. you know you know the well i've got goosebumps now <laughs> no it's the the stuff we're going to be able to see and discover with that level of precision of observation is Oh, I hope something comes out soon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, this year's Nobel Prize in Physics was for black holes, and next up, pulsars and gravitational waves. A note to listeners that Nobel Prizes generally take some decades before they're awarded. <laughs> so, even if, the, even if the science does come out in the next year, we won't be seeing a Nobel Prize for some time. That's true. That's true. Okay, who do we have next? Next up, we have Katja Moskvich who is a science journalist uh, and science writer who has recently published a book entitled Neutron Stars, The Quest to Understand the Zombies of the Cosmos. Yeah. So we've both started reading that. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm thinking so far that it's really good. Yeah. I mean, it's it's super engaging. I, mm. I, I picked it up and I was like, oh, I don't feel like reading a textbook. Yeah. But it wasn't. I mean, it's, yeah. not, it's not at all like it's very well written. You, you kind of 
you it's get, a story yeah exactly it's you a get, narrative you get drawn into the story mm. very quickly yeah i had the same reaction i sort of was like well in my spare time when i'm not doing astronomy or doing a podcast on astronomy maybe i don't actually want to read about astronomy but this book was very engaging and it, it was about the stars but also about the people um yeah. behind the discoveries and so katia is gonna tell us a lot about that We're joined now by Katia Moskvich, the author of Neutron Stars, The Quest to Understand the Zombies of the Cosmos. Welcome, Katia. Thank you. Hi. Hi again. I remember we guys met, uh, what was it, uh, a year ago in Cape Town? Yeah, back when travel was allowed. What Was that part of this book, this research, that visit? The visit was exactly for the book, yes. Uh, it was one of my stops, you know, my travels around the world for the book, and I visited a number of uh, really cool radio telescopes all around the world. And when I was in South Africa, I went to see Meerkat. It took me about 10 hours to drive there. But yeah, it was, <laughs> it was really cool. I'm so jealous. I still haven't seen Meerkat. <laughs> and I've lived here for two, two and a half years now. <laughs> what was that like, Katya? Meerkat is amazing, of course. I went there because I wanted to understand more about neutral stars. So the idea of the book and the idea of the travels as well goes back to when the publisher from Harvard University Press approached me and they said, okay, you can just write whatever. At the time I was working on a on an article about the merger of two neutron stars. That was for Quanta magazine. And I thought, okay, neutron stars could be a cool topic, especially nobody's really written about neutron stars before for a general audience. But then I thought, okay, well, how do I say, how do I make it interesting for people? Because, you know, it's so, it's quite far away. It's quite abstract. We can't really see them. They give, give off radio waves. But, you know, uh, like, how do I make it appealing to the general public? And I thought, okay, well, if I actually go to all these places like Meerkat and other observatories around the world that actually observe them, and then I can describe what these instruments look like and how excited people get, people who, who work there, even though many scientists don't go to, to radio observatories nowadays because, you know, they, of course, operate telescopes remotely. But even then, it doesn't matter, you know, because if I meet these people, and I met quite a few people in Cape Town, they just get so excited, their eyes light up and they're like, oh my God, this is so cool. And it's just so different from, you know, compared to if you just talk to them on the phone. So that was the idea. And Meerkat itself is just 64, these amazing, really cute, you know, dishes that all work together. It's just it's an amazing location as well. The skies are, you know, completely, there's no light pollution and it's far away from, from any cities or anything. And we just passed a few farmhouses on the way. It's able, it's so sensitive, it's able to get signals from amazing objects in the sky. And it's not even ready, like, well, Meerkat is completely built, of course, but uh, it's a precursor to this much bigger project, Square Kilometer Array. And that one, once it's built, it's going to be this humongous radio telescope in South Africa and Australia. And once that's built, I really want to visit that as well. <laughs> For sure. I think that's the first time I've heard the meerkat dishes described as cute, but I completely agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> Living up to their name. Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, Did that's you see fair. any meerkats while you were up there? Any meerkats? No. I <laughs> don't remember seeing anything actually I was told that they're scorpions so I was told to wear um, 
you know, special boots, like construction boots, uh, so that a scorpion doesn't sting or whatever. But I haven't seen, I haven't seen any actually. <laughs> they're very, they're very cute too. You mentioned that your 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 editor allowed you to to write whatever you wanted. How did how did you get into science writing? How did you, how did you come to be at this point where you could write a book on science? I've been a science journalist for many years now. I liked journalism. I liked writing ever since I was a kid. But when I was in high school, I actually wanted to be an astronaut. It so happened that my high school was the same high school where in Montreal where like the second Canadian female astronaut went. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, that was really cool. There's her, her portrait on the wall. So I wrote a letter to her at the time. I don't think we had email yet back then. Anyway, I wrote her like a real letter and she replied. And I asked her, like, how do I become an astronaut? And she said, well, you have to study science or engineering. So I went into engineering at McGill following her advice, but I realized I didn't want to be an engineer actually when I was in about my second year. And and yeah, and they told me that my vision wasn't good enough to be an astronaut either. So I was like, okay, well, that kind of kills that dream. But uh, then I decided to be a science writer. So I went and did a master's in journalism and my engineering degree really helped, you know, in terms of understanding what people were talking about. That's how I got into science writing. But then I found myself writing more and more about space and, and astronomy and physics. And I wasn't understanding a lot of what I was writing about. And I was like, I don't know what these, these people are talking about. And it really, it was really hard because, you know, and frustrating as well, because I, I had to translate it to the audiences. And if I didn't get it myself, then it's, it's so much harder to translate it to the audiences, right? So I went, I decided to do a degree in, in physics then. So I got my MPhil, a Master of Philosophy in Theoretical Physics. I remember coming to King's College and I simply, I was at Nature at the time and I went to the director and I was like, you know what, I'm a journalist, I write about physics, I don't understand anything, I, I need to like get a degree. And he was so impressed, he said, yeah, I wish more journalists could, you know, get um, a science degree before getting into journalism, because it's so important, right? And uh, so that's how I got my, my physics degree. And just, you know, continuing from there, I started to specialize in astronomy specifically, and suddenly, I received this LinkedIn message from an editor or a publisher at Harvard University Press or a guy, rather, who says that he's one of the editors there. And he's like, you know, do you want to write a book? And I was like, okay, that's so weird. It's a LinkedIn message. It must be spam or something. I usually get marketing requests or some stupid stuff on LinkedIn. There's no way it's going to be true. But I Googled him. Turns out he was a genuine editor. He just approached me via LinkedIn which was really weird. Um, and yeah, he said, like, you can write whatever you like. And as I said before, like at the time I was writing this big story on the merger of two neutron stars. So that's how the book uh, idea came, came along. And now I'm still writing about science. I'm working, I kind of switched careers. I went from journalism into corporate communications and I write about quantum computing at IBM Research. So still working with scientists, but not so much uh, astronomy anymore, but still still very cool. That is very cool. So cool. And a reminder to me to check my LinkedIn messages. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the book, so it's, it, it's entitled Neutron Stars, the, the Quest to Understand the Zombies of the Cosmos. Now, my first question was, why zombies of the cosmos? Dad, zombies. Has, Dad has some qualms with this, but I don't. So tell, <laughs> tell us how you came to that title, Katya. 
Right. Yeah. Actually, it took us a while uh, with the uh, with the publishing house to come up with the right title. Zombies is a really really fitting name actually for neutron stars because when you think about neutron stars, what are they? If you take a star, any star, if you take the sun, for example, right? When the sun is going to die, it's not. It's going to be really boring, actually. So the sun, it's it's just this medium-sized star, actually, on a smaller side of things. So when it dies, it's first going to kind of get a little bit bigger, turn into a red giant, and then it's going to turn into a brown dwarf, this really boring object. We can't see it. You know, the Earth is not going to be around any anyway around that time, but it's just going to stay in space forever, really boring. But if you take a bigger star, much bigger than the sun, so maybe from you know eight times to 20 times bigger than the sun in terms of mass, more massive than the sun. And when that star dies, it really goes out with a bang. There's a supernova explosion and it's really pretty. We could see it with optical telescope. And what stays behind is this compact object. And that's what we call a neutron star. So zombies of the cosmos, that's because it's a leftover core of a real star. So it's actually dead because the star just died. It exploded in a supernova. And this tiny object, and tiny, I mean, really tiny, it's actually about 20 kilometers across. So if you imagine, you know, a city like maybe like Cape Town or even smaller than Cape Town, and you curl it up into a ball and you have the sphere, which is only 20 kilometers across and it's spinning in space and it's spinning like crazy, like maybe hundreds of revolutions a second, like some, you know, spinning like 600 revolutions a second. And it's also traveling uh, about 200 kilometers per second through space. When it's spinning, it's giving off radiation too. So there's no way we can actually see these stars because they don't give off light at all. And because they're so small. So for the longest time, actually, they were completely theoretical. And uh, only later, we completed by chance, this amazing woman in, in the UK, Joycelyn Bell, she, uh, she was actually looking for something completely different with a radio array in Cambridge. And she spotted radio waves, like pulses from some unidentified object. And she didn't know what it was. And they actually kept it a secret for a while because they thought maybe these are aliens sending signals to Earth. And she was actually really annoyed about it because she was like completing her PhD project. She was about to get married. And there's this, you know, bunch of aliens completely screwing this <laughs> PhD project. And she's, she's a really funny woman. Uh, she's really amazing. I met her uh, in the UK. And yeah, she said something like, you know, couldn't they like choose another planet to signal while I'm here working on my PhD thesis? Like, really? <laughs> so, um, she makes fun out of that. Anyway, she did, she did detect the very first neutron star, a pulsar. We call them pulsars when we can detect the radiation from them. Why pulsars is because, you know, it's just like a lighthouse. So uh, a lighthouse, when it's turning in, in the sea, right, it's actually giving off continuous light. And a ship can only see the light every second or so, right? Because it's turning. And if the ship is in the field of view of the lighthouse, then it, it will see the light. And then again and again and again, so flashes of light. Same with the pulsar. It's a spinning in space and it's giving off this radiation, continuous radiation. But if our telescopes are in the field of view of, of the pulsar, then it will also get these pulses like beep, 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 right? So this is, this is what we receive. And this is coming from these dead leftover cores of a regular massive star, so which I find completely amazing. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. It's, it's, it's great. I mean, I, I agree. I just, 
I was I was trying to get my head around the undead nature of these stars. <laughs> Why? It's clearly a dead star, and then the star is undead because it's still doing no, 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 no. things. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting on board. I'm getting on board. <laughs> so, Katia, you travelled to many places around the world to write this book, and you met so many people. Tell us about some of your favourite experiences and the most interesting people you met. You mentioned that you spoke to Matthew Bales, right? Uh, So Matthew Bales is one of the main characters in the book because he is amazing. He is such a great guy. And he's the one who actually told me about the neutron star merger story way in the beginning, even before the book happened, when I was writing a story on uh, for Quanta. So before before the Quanta story even happened. So I was at that conference in Jojo Bank, which is one of the radio telescopes, famous radio telescopes, and it's located near Manchester. So I was living in London at the time and I came to this conference. It was um, like a 50th anniversary of the discovery of pulses that I just described by Joyce and Bell, which happened in 1967. Yeah, I I suddenly noticed that people are kind of, you know, discussing something in really hush, hush tones and not telling me what the heck they're talking about. They're like, you know, kind of saying something in groups. And I was like, what is going on? There must be some big story, but no, nobody's telling me. It's, and, and then I was waiting. Uh, I missed my bus because I was interviewing somebody and I needed to go back to my Airbnb. And the telescope is a bit you know, far away from, you know, you can't just easily walk from the telescope to the nearest uh, village or whatever. And uh, so I'm like standing there in the parking lot. What am I supposed to do? How am I going to get to my Airbnb? And this guy comes by. He's like, if you want, I can give you a lift. And that was Matthew. And I'm like, yeah, you know, great. And what do you do? And so we started talking and he's like, okay, you're a journalist. And I told him I was writing for Quanta at the time as a freelancer. And Quanta is this quite reputable, actually, publication, American publication. Usually stories are really, really good. And scientists know that. They know that it's not going to be, you know, dumping down the science or anything like that. So for him, that was a good sign. And he was like, okay, I'm going to tell you something that's, you know, going to be probably the biggest story of your career. I was like, okay. And then, but he was, he was very, very careful, of course. And I talk about that in the book because he is a member of LIGO collaboration. So LIGO is one of these, it's a huge collaboration of scientists looking for gravitational waves. And uh, you can't, just like, you know, any other research collaboration or whatever, everything is under embargo. If there is a big story, they have to check it and double check it and triple check it and then publish the paper and peer review it and everything. And then it's going to be made public. So he said, using a lot of like ifs and buts, you know, look, if there was like a neutron star and if it was to bump into another neutron star, then it would send off gravitational waves and those gravitational waves would reach the Earth for the first time ever and prove Albert Einstein right and his theory of relativity and stuff. And I was like, okay, he's using a lot of ifs, like he's being really careful, but I think he's trying to tell me something. And indeed he was. And so anyway, we ended up writing the story. We timed it perfectly for the, when embargo was lifted. So we didn't like leak anything and he knew we wouldn't. And that's how that story happened. And that's the story that I started the book with as well. And the meeting with Matthew was crucial because then when I visited Australia, he actually took me from Melbourne 
all the way to Parks, which is quite a cool road trip. We stopped in Canberra uh, in the in the capital, and we reached uh, the amazing Parks telescope in in Australia. Parks is is this quite old instrument now. It was built, I think, in the 1960s. Uh, it's been upgraded actually recently, but it is this amazing radio dish, completely different from Meerkat. So Meerkat is like, as I said, 64 uh, small antennas, but Parks is one gigantic uh, radio dish, which is actually just happens to be also 64 meters in, in diameter, just to, you know, coincidence. Anyway, what was really cool about Parks specifically was that the guy who works there, the telescope operator, he gave me a lift in the in the dish so he invited me to step inside this gigantic 64 meter dish and then another person who was in the control tower kind of started lifting it up so i was standing inside was was the was this guy john sarkisian who works there and suddenly you see the tree line disappear and you're like you know being uh, lifted up in this gigantic uh, soup bowl or like telescope dish so that was an unbelievable feeling so that was parks but apart from that, I visited quite a few other places around the world and we can talk about them depending on what other questions you guys have. Yeah, that's so cool. I did most of my PhD research uh, with Parks at Parks back in the day when you had to go there yourself and do the observations yourself. So I also managed to do the same thing as you, Katia, jump into the dish while it was moving upwards and uh, it was a lot of fun. What I'm really interested to hear in also is you went to the Atacama Desert in Chile, didn't you? Yes, exactly. I did. So Atacama is amazing. It's the driest place on earth. It's not actually really, a well, it is a desert, of course, but it's not a desert the way I imagined it to be. I thought it would be like sand, but I didn't do my research properly. It's not sand at all. It's like this, it's red, okay? And they have uh, copper mines there. It's full of copper. So when you drive through the Atacama, it's like this amazing Martian landscape. I think they actually filmed a few movies there as well to pretend that it's Mars. Because it's so remote and it's in the southern hemisphere, which is better for observations, and there's no light pollution. And also, for some bizarre reason, I can't remember now why, but there are not a lot of clouds. So for optical observations, it's great too, because the sky is so clear. So they have two really cool telescopes. Well, they have a lot of actually smaller telescopes, but two big ones that I visited. One is Paranal, which is an optical telescope. But the one that I used for the book that was important for the book is called ALMA. Uh, and that one is a Atacama millimeter, submillimeter array. So it's also a cluster of uh, dishes. It's similar to Meerkat, uh, a little bit different in design. And they are located at 5,000 meters altitude, uh, the place called Chajnantor Plateau. And it's actually really cool because the air is very thin because it's so high up. So we had to wear oxygen masks. And uh, some locals gave me coca leaves too to chew because this is like, <laughs> if you start feeling dizzy, just chew the leaves. And I was like, it's not even legal. But yeah, it turned out <laughs> it was legal. So it was absolutely fine. But yeah, that amazing place. They don't really study neutron stars very often. But what they did study actually, and what I describe in the book, in one of the um, recent studies, they looked at a supernova explosion and a neutron star like being born in real time. So they did all sorts of calculations and observations, and they think that they saw the object being formed 
like a star exploding and the neutral star being formed literally in real time. That was the first time that they observed it with a telescope. It's not 100% sure yet. They still have to do a lot of false observational calculations and everything. That's what ALMA was really good for. And if it is confirmed, then it will be the first time that we can see a neutral star being born in real time, which is quite cool. That is so cool to be able to watch a, a neutral star being born. <laughs> Watching a star die and a zombie be born. Well, maybe it's a phoenix <laughs> out of the ashes of the old comes in here. <laughs> oh, phoenix, phoenix is nice. Yeah. Um, is, is that neutron star pulsing? I mean, are they, have they observed anything from it? Or are they no, just assuming? Yet. They just found this like engine, they call it like an engine. So like there's something that's happening and they are not sure if it's a black hole neutron star uh, inside this, this um, the debris, the kind of the nebula. But most people think that neutron star is more likely explanation. But no, uh, I mean, this is the difference. Uh, not all neutron stars actually give, give off radio waves. And that's why there are two names. So we kind of use them interchangeably, but not all neutron stars are pulsars. Uh, some neutron stars are also magnetars, so they can only be observed with X-ray detectors. So we can't see them in, they don't pulsate, they don't give off radio waves actually at all. Speaking of zombies, you know, what's very interesting, and I also talk about it in the book, is that there are neutron stars that die twice, you know, which is really cool because, so first, okay, you get this massive star, which will die, as I described before, it turns, it turns into a, a neutron star. And then if it happens to be next to a companion star, what will happen, it will basically start cannibalizing the companion star and like eating off the matter from the companion star. And by doing so, it will spin up, it will like rotate faster and faster, and it will turn into what we call a millisecond pulsar. And at that stage, we can't see the radio waves anymore and we'll be able to, to observe it differently. And so, and then it will kind of, it, it can stop pulsating and kind of die again and then it will revive again. So anyway, it's just the different stages that neutron stars go through. And yeah, and not all of them, of course, do that, only those that have companions. But yeah, I find it completely fascinating. Totally a phoenix. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> rising from the ashes. Well, now we've got cannibal zombies. Like it's, it's, <laughs> cannibal it's, zombie we, <laughs> the zombie, the zombie metaphor is really working for me now. <laughs> yeah, pulsars and neutron stars are absolutely fascinating, and you can tell how passionate and interested you are. Yeah, I think uh, it's cool. I mean, they're like a very extreme like stage of the universe, right? I mean, it's a it's a very extreme environment that we're looking at. So there's there's really stuff that's happening there which you can't see anywhere else in the universe. Mm. And I think that that's why it's so cool. Yeah, exactly. They are incredibly dense. Black holes are, of course, the densest objects. But black holes are not matter, it's radiation. And uh, neutron stars are the densest objects that you can see that we, we, we know of. Some of the visual descriptions I kind of try to use in the book for uh, lay audience to understand is if you take uh, the mass of the sun, and sun is really, really huge, right? It's much, much bigger than the earth. But if you take all that mass and you put it inside a tiny object, which is only 20 kilometers across, you can imagine how much denser it will be. And this is the a typical neutron star. Or if you take uh, with your finger, like if you scoop up a little bit of... Uh, neutron star meta, you know, then it will pull you down with like a really a mass or weight of billions of tons, which is really amazing. You, you mentioned that, you know, you, you wrote this book. What's next? Are you, are you planning another book? Are we going to see more books on astronomy coming out of you? 
Possibly. I'm actually discussing a book with Harvard University Press right now. One of the chapters of this book deals with dark matter, which, you know, at first glance doesn't even have a link to neutral stars, but actually there is, just because there's a signal coming out from our own galactic center, center of the Milky Way, that some people think could be from dark matter particles. Other people think that could be from thousands of pulsars that we can't yet observe because our telescopes are not sensitive enough. So I kind of talk about this whole debate between dark matter, whether it's dark matter or not. For that, I also visited a really cool dark matter detector in Italy under a mountain range called Gran Sasso. We haven't yet detected any dark matter particles, so we, we do think that dark matter exists. And we have lots of, you know, theories and indirect observations, of course, of dark matter as well, but no direct detections. So I think it would be really cool. Well, now with COVID is <laughs> a little bit tricky to travel, but once I can travel, I would like to visit lots of other dark matter observatories around the world and possibly write a book on that. So that would be really cool too. Maybe this um, will be an even bigger story in your life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it will coincide with the discovery of what it is. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> um, so Katia, you won the European Science Writer of the Year last year, 2019. So congratulations. What advice would you have for for listeners who might be interested in getting into science writing and journalism? We often interview sort of people on the academic pathway, and that's how they interact with science um, on, on this particular podcast. And this is a very different way of being a scientist and being involved in it, but outside academia. What advice would you have for listeners? Well, those who want to get into science writing – if they already have background, a background in science, that's great. If they don't have a background in science but passion for science, that's also great. I mean, the key is just to ask a lot of questions. As I said, like before I got my degree in, in, in science, it only happened, I only graduated last year. Uh, so I was writing about science for many, many years without a degree. And it's totally possible. You just have to ask a lot of questions and make sure that you understand what the scientist is telling you. And if you don't understand, then you ask again, because very often scientists, of course, they're so close to their subject that they may reply in, in very technical language using, you know, using jargon. But you just need to ask again and again and maybe tell them even beforehand, look, this is for a general audience. If they still don't get it, you can tell them, look, okay, pretend you're talking to your grandma. You're talking to a friend in a bar and your friend is really, really clever, but, you know, not a, not a scientist, but maybe, I don't know, a lawyer, right? Like how, and you really want your friend to understand your research. How do you do it? And, and, and this trick usually, usually works. And I think once you get uh, the interview out of the way, writing an article about science, if you're passionate about it and if you like the subject, is, is not that difficult. Awesome. Thank you, Katya. Thank you once again for joining us. Can you just tell the listeners quickly where they can get your book? Yes, of course, it's available on Amazon. Also, if you go to Harvard University Press or Harvard Bookshop, you can read about it as well. But Amazon probably would be the easiest way. <laughs> And where can listeners find you online? Listeners can always find me on Twitter. It's uh, SciTechCat, uh, or they can just Google, or they can just put Katia Moskvich into Google, and you can find my Twitter or LinkedIn or other social media. And they can ask me any questions as well. I'm also very responsive on Twitter. Awesome. And did you have any final messages for listeners? Well, I guess one message is that 
whoever wants to write about science always has to remember that there is no science without people. And this is very important because writing just about science is going to put many people to sleep because even though science is cool, but, you know, equations to many people who don't understand them is not particularly interesting. But just remember, there is no science about people. If you write about people, if you put emotions in your story, then everybody will get excited. And there's no science writing without people either. That's so right. We're very grateful for you. <laughs> yeah, I can highly recommend the book. I'm partway through it and it's uh, it's so well written and it's very engaging. So thank you for putting it together, Katia. And thank you again for joining us on the Cosmic Savannah. Great. Thank you guys for inviting me. Thanks, Katia. Okay. As we mentioned before, both of us have been enjoying the book thus far, and I certainly intend to carry on reading it. Yeah. And we hope you guys do too. Yeah. So I, I can definitely recommend it. Very interesting to, to hear what went into it and very cool. I mean, the, the idea of going around and get, get, having the opportunities to go and see all of these telescopes mm. firsthand and meet the people mm. involved and like it's, it really does give you a, a completely different view of science as she said mm -hmm. like it's yeah you know science is nothing without the people and she, she's yeah. bang on right? yeah and i like how she's describing the day that the people had when they found out that the detection of the neutron star collision had happened the, yeah. and the gravitational wave signal the she goes to the she talks to the scientists who wrote the papers who made the discovery essentially and she describes the day that they were having before this and then it suddenly happened and how it changed their lives very quickly. So I thought that was really fascinating. All right. So I think that's it for today. That is. Great. Thanks very much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of The Cosmic Savannah. As always, you can visit our website, thecosmicsavannah.com. We will have the transcript, links, and other stuff related to today's episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Cosmic Savannah. That's Savannah spelled S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H. Special thanks to Professor Matthew Bales and Katia Moskvich for speaking with us. Thanks to Sumari Hatting and Lian Soa Ranjian Janahari for social media support, Tim Rolfe for show notes and preparation, and Sambatra Johnson for transcription assistance. Also to Mark Allnut for music production, Janis Brink and Michal Wercek for photography and Lana Sarai for graphic design. We gratefully acknowledge support from the South African National Research Foundation, the South African Astronomical Observatory and the University of Cape Town Astronomy Department to help keep the podcast running. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to help, please rate and review us and recommend us to a friend. We'll speak to you next time on the Cosmic Savannah. Are you a convert now, Dan, to the <laughs> to the zombie to the zombie analogy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, but uh, tell me what your qualms were. I'm interested. My my qualms were mo mainly the sort of the unscientific nature of a zombie. Like, the <laughs> 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 it just feels like I don't know. Like, okay. I mean, are we allowed to call stars hobbit stars? Like. I don't know. Like if they, like we don't. Well, I don't know. It's not. It's not something which is is well well formed in my mind. But I, I just, I wouldn't have used it. Well, I've written a blog post before about the neutron star collision, and I used zombies. <laughs> so I'm a fan. Well, so.
Depending on what the title for this is, you'll see who won the fight. It'll be zombies of All Cosmos. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> or, or zombies and phoenixes, either way. <laughs> yeah, I like the phoenix. Except that, I, no, I don't like the phoenix that much either. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm a, I'm a tough, tough cell. Bit of a Grinch. Yeah, so, so. <laughs> <On this one. laughs> 